Hey, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark to do another episode of talking about Ravenloft Realm of Terror, the black box set. Uh, we're doing chapters four through, what, nine, eight? I don't know exactly <laughs> I think what it's, I... I think it's through eight. So we, we stop off at nine spells in Ravenloft. Uh, everything before that. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk right. about this time. And, oh man, there's some meaty, meaty stuff yeah. in this one, too. I really enjoyed reading some of this stuff. So. And and to give this some context, I used to run Ravenloft pretty much all through the 90s. That was the setting I ran. I used mainly the, the black box set and the red box set. And I, I remember using Domains of Dread when it came out, but I was less enthused about that. So I still mm. tended to lean on the black box set. And I ran it in the early 2000s as well using uh, D20. The uh, I forget the name of the company, but like the White Wolf Company. That was, uh, I think it was Sword and Sorcery made a bunch oh, of yeah, yeah. stuff, which I, I didn't care for that. And I didn't care for the D20 system with Ravenloft. So I went back around 2008 or so running Ravenloft campaigns using the old material. Uh, but it's been a while since I've read the red, the, the, the black box set. And so, and, and Joel has never read it. So we're going through and, and reading it now. And I just want to say out of the fence, uh, out of the gate, uh, we, I think we started this a week and a half ago. So this first <laughs> yeah. chapter, we're going to be a little fuzzy on this first chapter. I do apologize. The rest of the chapters, I read them all today again. And I think Joel, I don't know when you read them, but I, it seemed like you were more fresh on the, on those chapters as well. So, yes. Cause I, I usually space the reading out, uh, once every two days or so. Uh, so yeah, the, this, this first set of chapter here is the fear and horror checks. I read a while ago at this point, yeah. but I remember them, uh, cause I really thought they were cool. And I like that there's yeah. two different varieties that cover two very different things. So, yeah. but I just wanted uh, to be clear that this is like a, a reaction to the black, the black box set. It's not an, uh, a lesson to to read to the listeners. Uh, so they should, <laughs> yeah. you know, so don't, don't take our word for it. Read it yourself because we might get details wrong. Um, but anyways, this is the, ch- the first chapter is chapter four, which is fear and horror checks. And uh, I don't know, what was your reaction to this chapter? Uh, oh, and actually, before we get into that, Ravenloft added rules for fear and horror. Later on, they would they would kind of crib from Cthulhu and add in insanity, like madness checks and stuff. But, oh, yeah, but yeah. at this point, they're just doing fear and horror. And basically, fear is stuff that's like an immediate threat to you, like a vampire chasing you. And horror is stuff that's shocking or grotesque and repugnant or like startling revelations that shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? So just things that kind of, you know, turn your world upside down in some way. And it's it's a little less Lovecraft and a little more Poe, if I had to characterize it. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's definitely the case. Um, It's 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 definitely not a game that's that's Cthulhu is all kind of really delves into the madness stuff. And it isn't until much later in the Ravenloft line that they really get into that. Horror does cover madness, but it's just Mm -hmm. not it's not like. Yeah, it's a more operatic madness. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, What was your reaction to the mechanics? Um, well, I, uh, I was fascinated with them because they're, they're a lot more fleshed out than I expected of this early of a design of something like this. Uh, I don't know when this came out in relation to Call of Cthulhu. I think Call of Cthulhu was like the grand progenitor Cthulhu, of RPG. Cthulhu was out, I think in like, I don't know about the date exactly, but it was definitely out by like 81 or something. And... Yeah. It's, it would, it'd have been around for a while. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 but I don't know the history of its sanity mechanics, so I don't know I, I how fleshed out. I'm sure it was, but I don't know how fleshed out because I know mainly whatever edition was prevalent in like 1989, 90. That's the edition that I 
mainly mm-hmm. used. So, um, and I know I picked up that edition again not too long ago, actually, but I just can't remember which one it was. But like it was, Cthulhu has had what like seven editions, I think, and they've it's up- had a lot. Yeah, yeah. Galaxian pumps them out. Yeah, but uh, but my the point I'm trying to drive at here is that's kind of the grand progenitor of psychology and horror, uh, yeah. or psychology psychology and RPGs is the that D100 chart of going insane. Yeah. Right. Like that's kind of the core of it. So and really, aside from that, the only thing I can think of like that drives like that pops into my head about like what would be psychology in a in a in an RPG is the morale checks that bad guys had to make. And only bad guys and followers had to make these in D&D. And those come from wargaming. So like that's that's more of a like morale and psychology like they're linked. But this is the intimacy of the psychology and its lingering effects really struck me as exceptionally well-developed. Uh, so much so that even decades later, uh, in games like World of Darkness and the New World of Darkness that came out for a while there, like rules like these, you still see echoes of this exact same kind of design. They're just that well-conceived. Um, it did strike me that they might be... And cause I've played with psychological yeah. rules before because I'm a big World of Darkness fan. And these these struck me as uh, something that you want as kind of a rarer spice. I think that, uh, and the rules seem to recognize that too. Uh, there's a few little clever things, like with fear, like player characters were not used to having to deal with psychology in terms of fear in D&D. Yeah. Like, that's a thing for hirelings, that's a thing for the, the goblins you're fighting, but you're a hero and you get to choose how your hero reacts. But this game takes the, when my estimation, bold and, and wise stance, that in a fear game, disempowering your protagonist is what you want. You know, you want to have this thing where there's something outside of your character they don't necessarily have, like, a manly control over that's intruding on the decisions you can make. And you saw that in the reshaping of the characters chapter, but here you see it in a more passive way. Like, reshaping characters is based on, I have done an evil thing actively, and therefore I'm being punished. This is about... I have experienced something traumatic and I don't get full control over how I process that. And that's alarming and fascinating in a way I yeah. really like. It's simple because it's just isn't it like just like a yeah, it's a fear check. It's a it's a it's a it's a save basically. It's a saving save throw. versus paralyzation. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's not even a new mechanic. Save versus paralyzation. So and I like that too because some characters are naturally therefore braver than others by dint of their career. That's neat. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, like some of the coding of when you roll is kind of specific. It's like, here are some guidelines. And one of them is like the threat, the hit dice of the threat, the thing that would cause fear are more than double the total hit dice of the yeah. entire party. Okay. I, not everyone plays old school D and D, but like when you do more than double the hit dice of the party, that's like unbelievably well, overpowered hit, you are so screwed in that be, scenario before there were challenge ratings and stuff hit dice is how we uh yes estimated the, the the difficulty of facing a foe so you would say like oh this hit die creature it's got too many hit dice to, to throw at a party this level if you were trying to balance an encounter um mm-hmm. which again you weren't always trying to do back then but like it was definitely that was the tool for that um, yeah that was the yardstick instead of challenge rating and yeah. challenge rating isn't necessarily a it's it's got a little yeah. more thought put but, into it but it's not necessarily a better what, system. What I liked about what I liked about not having challenge ratings was when you did need to eyeball that, 
it forced you to look at hit dice. It forced you to look at damage output and mm-hmm. things, you know, things that mattered in concretely in terms of what can this monster do? do like, can this monster long, kill? And I think they get last. into that here. I think, because yeah. I think, isn't there also the creature can kill somebody? Yeah, the maximum damage the creature can inflict is enough to kill the hardiest character in the group yeah. in just one round. They make that clear where it's like, look, if it's Cthulhu and he's going to step on you and you die, that's frightening enough that you might freak out and lose control yeah. of your character. Yeah, and also it's it's it doesn't the players obviously their characters don't know what a hit die is, but those mm. two facts are things that the the characters would need to be aware of in some way. Like they might not know it's got hit die, but they know it's twice as powerful as the party in some way, or they you know, there should you know they should have some awareness oh, yeah. of it. Um, yeah, but, and, and again, it's that it explicitly calls that out. A character may only guess yeah. that one of these conditions is true. Yeah. Um, the DM must decide whether a fear check is appropriate. So, like, if you encounter, you know, uh, uh, what is a Strahd von Zarevich, and he's, like, in disguise, and you don't recognize him, that's not horrifying. That's not, that's not going to make you terrified. Yeah. But when he stands up to his full height, and you see that it's, like, this vampire lord, okay, you might douse your britches. Yeah, and, and I do like these... Now, again, I know a lot of people are... There, there There's criticism of this kind of mechanic, and there's, like, a, definitely a debate over whether this is good. Personally... I find that anything that affects a player's control affects their ability to move and things like that for horror games actually really enhances the atmosphere and makes for a more scary session. So it, with fear checks, the thing that it does is, number one, you you have a chance of dropping your, your weapon or whatever you're holding, which mm. is significant because if you lose your weapon, that makes you more vulnerable. And well, especially then, in, a, in a setting like this where sometimes your weapon is the only kind of thing that can hurt the monster yeah. you're dealing with. So it's a silver sword and you lose it, that werewolf is going to murder you. Yeah. So so it, it so fear checks are a tool that 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 do that. In the next step, I think you have to run away, if I recall, because you're fear struck. Well, there's different ways uh, you can react to it. There's like I think there's six different ways. I think you're thinking of the horror checks. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's yeah. horror checks. Yeah. So yeah. Fear modifiers. What, what do you do? Like it's. So see. see, so you see the fear check, and then it says like they have the chance to drop in the weapon. And then the next paragraph is whether or not you uh, you drop something. A uh, character who feels fails a fear check is fear struck. The survival stink, instinct takes over, and he has no choice but to run away. Um, so then you have to go anywhere as long as you're not dealing with the threat. Uh, let's see. Uh, after that, it continue attacking from behind. So so there's potentially you're getting attacked as you're running away. Um, and if you can't flee, then you have to turn and confront the threat. And where this gets really interesting is, um, let's see this. I believe that there's a chance that you could continue, uh, but I'm not. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that. I might be thinking of one of the, the horror effects as well. But basically, there's this loss of control, which I think is is interesting. Um, and I also think that that you drop your your weapon is interesting. Um, you know, again, I think its primary purpose in the game was this idea that if you have a care a player who's like, you know, just ah, oh, I just attack Strahd. You know, it's like, wait a second, yeah. your character wouldn't do that. Like, it, and and I think this mechanic is weighty enough that it can reinforce that argument to the player very well. Do you know what I mean? So I think I think it works. I I I feel like uh, you know some people have a negative reaction to having that kind of loss of control. But on the whole, I, I tend to like games that do that. Um, oh, so here well, it is. And here's, and here's the thing. Oh, go ahead. Uh, let me see. Yeah, you're still fear struck. Uh, 
for like 1d4 rounds at, even after the threat is passed i think um yeah like because so. you're dealing with the fact that you're you get your fight or flight reflex tripped um and, and here's the thing if you if you're going into playing ravenloft you have to understand this this isn't greyhawk like you're you're going into a very different tonally t different game yeah and it's kind of the difference between like playing super mario and playing castlevania in super mario like there's no delay on any of your controls you press jump you jump you fire fly you shoot the fire you can go super fast in that game and like there are like pits you can fall into but it's more a test of your reflexes as a player than less a test of like the psychology of mario but in castlevania yeah. even the first castlevania when you you can jump no problem but whenever you press the whip like you wait a second yeah like you're pausing well, and assessing a situation resident evil did that too where it was not an easy game to control the character and the point of mm -hmm. view changed a lot like the angle of the shot changed a lot and i remember distinctly that lack like it wasn't like you had no control it's just that it was more sluggish in terms of it, it was clumsy i'll put it that way the controls felt yeah. deliberately clumsy and it worked. It made the game more scary because you, you were reacting more like somebody who was horrified. In a scary situation, yeah. yeah. And that's that's telegraphed to... Because you're not in a scary situation as a person. You're just sitting there on your couch in yeah. comfort and joy playing a video game. Or in this case, playing a role-playing game. But your character is in a terrifying yeah. situation, facing something that is a real chance of a, yeah. just annihilating them casually. They have to deal with the psycho psychological and element. These are good rules for that. Yeah, and I mean, and they might be a little heavy-handed, but I do think it works because I feel like in real life, even if you're facing something that's frightening, or uh, you know, that takes courage to overcome, you don't react the way you want to. Do you know what I mean? Everybody mm -hmm. wants to react a certain way. Nobody does. It's it's uh, you know, it, it takes it takes a lot of experience to get to a point where you react in the way that you want to with things. Oh yeah, so, and my my second. Or my, I think this is a second ed module. My second ed foo is not super great, but I'm pretty sure that the paladin was immune to most versions of fear. So like a, a character like that that is actually explicitly like, look, no, I fight evil. That's who I am and what I am. Like it's it really helps distinguish a character like that, especially because as we established last time, the bad guys know you're a paladin and they know where you are. Yeah, and I and so, I have to, I'd have to look that up for a second. I actually. In the uh, as we were doing this, uh, I, I have an old second edition player's handbook, and I was like, you know what, I'll go to drive through and I'll order a new, fresh version. Unfortunately, they don't have the 89 edition, they have the revised edition, which uh, I'm not as much a fan of, but I figure, you know, we'll we'll get a fresh copy and maybe, maybe uh, do another session of Ravenloft at some point. Um, but uh, so let's move on to horror checks. Uh, what did you think of the horror checks? I love the horror checks, um, yeah, I, and, I, I like them. Especially because they're not triggered by things that are necessarily like, like frightening in a, a sense of like it can, it can danger it endangers you. Like it 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 attacks you in a psychic level. You know, you see something so unnerving and revolting and disturbing that like your mind starts breaking apart and it, yeah. it traumatizes you. And like the way that happens is unpredictable yeah. and it lasts a long time and you have to like. You can it's, get re-traumatized. It's more it's emotional. Cool. It's more emotional. Like the, I think the explanation they give is something like you might have to make a fear check against a werewolf, but you make a horror check when you find the the ripped up remains of your friends from the werewolf, right? Like that's kind of the the idea. There's and, and there's another example in there about a woman 
bathing by a, a river and taking her head off after she takes yeah. off her clothes, which is kind of humorous, but also really creepy, uh, <laughs> which I, I thought was kind of a good example. Cause it kind of, it kind of starts out with a scene that's almost playful and fun. And then it's like, Whoa, she's now she's taking her head off. This is not expected. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this went sideways on me. Yeah. That, like which is what evil dead kind of thing. But, but that's kind of what horror is. Horror is things going sideways in a way, right? Like that's, mm. that's a good, so, so I always liked that example. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and also this is one where I think you kind of mentioned it with fear before, uh, when you were a little bit, you got them crossed, but I think one of the reasons why maybe you like this is you, you roll to see what the effect of a horror check is as well. So it has different results, which is, I don't know. I think it's more, I, I always remembered horror checks being a lot more fun than fear checks was my memory. Um, I run away isn't really the most satisfying outcome, but I, I kind of like when I get to roll on a, on a critical failure chart or something like that, because there's mm-hmm. a little more meat to it than I fail and run yeah. like in this one, like you could become obsessed with it or you could fly into a rage and start attacking without thinking it or just stand there totally dumbstruck. And like, there's all kinds of great things that can happen to you. Um, I love that. I love that. Like, you don't, and I, because it goes along with the idea that you don't really know how you're going to act under pressure until yeah. it happens, and then it's yeah. like, oh, I guess that's who I am under pressure. Um, I love that, and I the effects can linger and stuff too, which is great. I think, mm-hmm. I think where Ravenloft went a little bit south for me was when they tried to incorporate the insanity mechanics because the horror check, even though it was doing it, like you said, in more operatic tones, it was mm-hmm. already doing it. And so when you add insanity on top of horror it suddenly becomes too much. Do you know what I mean? It's well, like... and a lot of these are things that happen in the insanity chart in Call of Cthulhu anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's they're, the... oh, Go ahead. They're, they're go all ahead. kind of driving at that same point, like you're saying, you know? Like, in an extreme of emotion, this is how the human mind breaks. Yeah, I think, I think my only criticism of the fear and horror checks as they presented them here would be that I don't think that they... They, they, they do say that you sometimes have to roll for fear and horror... And mm. I always felt that that something about that was ungainly in practice. I, I you know, it's, it's been a while since I've done it, but I always remembered that bothering me. I always felt like it should be one or the other. Do you know what I mean? Just because fear struck is an actual possibility on a horror check anyways. And it just doesn't, necess- you know, if, mm-hmm. it just seemed like the layering of those two mechanics could kind of be difficult to, to, to deal with. Well, and mathematically you are getting people to the point where they're way likely to fail, even if they're reasonably brave characters, you know, cause if you just keep rolling that D 20, every time you roll it, there's a, a wildly inflated chance of failure happening. Yeah. So like, I, yeah, I don't like rolling to failure is what that's called. So I well, would say the, the worst one should trump in my estimation. Yeah, and also I'm looking at the text now. It actually is, it doesn't, it, you you roll them both, but you only make the second roll if the first one uh, succeeds. So I think it's, uh, you wouldn't actually be dealing with both effects, but it's still, I don't know. I just, which actually that is kind of elegant, but I still think you should just be one or the other would just be simpler. I like simplicity in my old age. Um yeah, well, that's so. I I don't want whenever I have to do something like that, it feels lumpy. Like it sticks out because yeah. most of the mechanics are pretty smooth. Yeah, but I but I really liked the the, the horror check. I I thought that uh, and again, the results are aversion, revulsion, obsession, senseless rage is my favorite. Uh, mental shock and fear struck. I've always like whenever I've done mechanics like this, I always have some variation of senseless rage. 
that I bring into it just because that one always really worked for me in play. It was it was the one that like the idea the idea of this guy just like just continuing to destroy whatever was horrifying him, even even potentially harming friends and allies was uh is is one that I always liked. Um <laughs> Well I, I like the option rule at the very end where you can get kind of inured to fear if you keep encountering the same thing over and over. Yeah. That's that's nifty. Yeah, you kind of get hardened from it, you know? Well, and I like that because one of the things I love about role-playing is how, how the characters change once they have to deal with the circumstance of the campaign, you know? Because characters, especially in old D&D, were largely defined by, like, their reputation and, like, the, the stuff they had gotten from adventuring and the particular mm -hmm. things they had done. And, like, this is kind of an extension of that, where, like you feel different as a player in your in your character when you've started a campaign running away from monsters yeah. and then like 30 sessions in you like you're level five or six and you get to the same werewolf that's been horrifying you this whole campaign and you like basically don't even have to roll you're like nope i got a silvered sword and you're toast yeah that's an amazing feeling and it's un it's impossible to replicate without taking that much time and having mechanics that reinforce it and so i like that a lot and so let's go down to the next chapter, which is where beasts oh, yeah, yeah. and vampires. Uh, what did you, and now we're getting into territory that we're, this is not last week's reading, but this is more today's <laughs> reading. So it'll probably be more fresh. Yes. Uh, well, we only stumbled, I only stumbled like once in that last one. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Um, I, I feel like I was a little bit behind in terms of what I remembered, but I think that the reaction was still, yeah, yeah, I definitely didn't remember it as well as, I mean, I read it like a week and a half ago. So, um, what about uh, what about this chapter though? What did you think about it? Um, I almost feel like it didn't go far enough because uh, th this is a chapter that is kind of reintroducing monsters that are in the monster manual and trying to make them fresh. Like yes. that's kind of the function of this chapter. It's like okay, lycanthropes are werewolves, yes, but also everything you know about a werewolf, you can you can kind of change it. You know, here's some different triggers for lycanthropy. Yeah. Uh, some of what it does is it kind of rationalizes the distinction between like being born a lycanthrope and being cursed with lycanthropy. I always thought that was a dumb distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I, I just isn't one where where creature enough. But I'm also like I'm not a big fan of like where. No, he, here's either. why that distinction exists. Here, here's what I here's why I think that distinction exists. You kind of want to do the howling sometimes. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And that's hard to do if that distinction isn't there do you know what i mean like that that idea of well i guess even in the howling it's still not that same thing but you know what i mean like there's a difference between movies where the werewolves are sort of part of a society of werewolves and movies where it's just somebody who is totally losing control and it, the total mercy of the curse of lycanthropy and yeah well having the natural opposite the huh? opposite of the howling was american werewolf in london yeah yeah that's a perfect right? those are the yeah. two poles yes uh, and this wants to do both. Yeah, well, what I, I guess what I'm saying is it gives you the breath to do both, is the mm -hmm. advantage of having natural and infected lycanthropes in a setting. Um, but I suppose, but it, here's the thing. Having, having ran Werewolf uh, the Forsaken, I didn't run the Apocalypse, but I ran mm -hmm. the Forsaken. The Forsaken is the howling. That's just okay. what it is. You're a bunch of werewolves and you werewolf it the hell up. Right. Um, I will say that's a fun game if everyone is a werewolf and if everyone has a thing to do as a werewolf. Uh -huh. And in any other case, if you're mixed and only one person's a werewolf, it's just weird. 
because they kind of play another oh, different game. No, I get what you're saying. Well, keep in mind, normally player characters wouldn't be expected to be natural lycanthropes. That that's sure, sure. I think the difference here. It's more that's more about the villainous threat. Do you know what I mean? But I I I think um, I don't know. I I, I uh, here here's here's what will be the test when we get into the domains. You'll start seeing the role that natural lycanthropes might be playing in this setting, and then and then tell me if you think natural lycanthropes would be better, or just having infected ones would be better, or if well, having both would be best. Here's the thing: I actually, I generally don't like it. I wanted to mm. lead in with that because I, okay. I really, I feel like it's muddled. But in this, I think it might be necessary, and for the reasons you're pointing out. Uh, one of the things, one of the other important things this chapter does in a subtle way, it doesn't come out and say it's doing this, but it does this very well. And we've mentioned it before. It takes something familiar, your werewolf, your vampire, whatever, yeah. and it says, here's ways to make this new. Here are some other ways. They, maybe it's, yeah. a were, it's a were warthog, and yeah. it, it only uh, changes at the sight of blood. You know, maybe it's not, yeah. uh, maybe it's not silver that destroys it. Maybe it's a totally different thing. You know, and like, there's a lot of that in this in this chapter, and it's not only with that because vampires have that same weird muddledness. They're even more muddled than this because, again, you kind of have you kind of have uh, two sorts of vampires. You have the ones that are like vampire lords, and then you have like the toady vampires that kind of suck as vampires that are made yeah. by vampire lords. But this one it has other vampires. Like maybe you were cursed with vampirism, and so that's just your curse. Well, you know. And, and and like you said, this you, you felt that this chapter didn't didn't go far enough, and I think that um, that's correct because they ended up doing a whole line of books based around this chapter. The von Richten guidebooks are essentially mm -hmm. an expansion on this concept. Um, oh yeah, and, and you, you could see where it needs to. There need to be more options. Yeah, like, yeah. I want like D one hundred lists. There's little D ten lists in here. This this chapter to me is the seed that made Ravenloft work as a setting. Like this is like once the von Richten book started coming out, that's when I really started to understand how to run Ravenloft. And I think it sort of it, it begins in this chapter. But like you're saying, it doesn't quite go far enough because they have like, what, five pages to, to work with. Yeah, there's not much in this chapter. Yeah. And it's a it's a it's an important role that it's playing in the yeah. overall way you would run this campaign. Yeah. But it is it is a tight space. And like both of us have worked in tight spaces writing wise. Yeah. And, um, I think they do a, I, they, they do do a good job with the space that, that they've allotted for it, but it oh, definitely yeah. is a chapter that needed to be twice as long at the at least in order to really yeah. get across what even, I think they wanted. Even just having two more pages that were just giant lists of options for yeah. weaknesses and powers would have been maybe enough to have given you enough to actually go as far as these introduce. Like they, they yeah. don't, these don't have the page count to really go as far with the concept uh, that they introduce uh, but they probably they give do. you the idea at least right like they give the you idea the idea is good yeah and like i think that that's what i admire the most about these uh they not only do they give you the idea but they have these good clever ways of structuring it like i like that they tie the vampire abilities to their age the yeah. longer the vampire has been alive the more powers they have vampire the masquerade came out a year later and has that exact same thing it's, well, it's and I think that was a trope. But... Yeah, I mean that was definitely a trope in literature and stuff. So it's like a, you know, but 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 it's nice that it actually has that, like the, you know that that 
that you can have ancient vampires being, you know, much more powerful than like a regular vampire, for example. Um, and, and, uh, and they do something similar with werebeasts, you know, not quite as much, I feel right. Like the, the werebeasts yeah. get a little bit of that treatment, but it feels like they're, they're you know, you have to wait well, for them. The, the single most interesting thing to me about the werebeasts is that there's only one way to remove the curse of lycanthropy from someone. And the only, and you get one chance and yeah. if you fuck it up, then they have to kill them. There's and it's really dramatic. No it's, they take, it they is. take, they take standards priest spells and if you've ever seen movies with exorcisms or anything, you immediately know what the visual of performing the, these spells is going to be. Do you know what I mean? It just has like mm-hmm. a... There's something very Catholic, I feel, about the uh, oh, yeah. uh, the depiction the there. It really w- works for me. Um, the uh, Yeah, I like this chapter, but I agree with you. It's, it's lean, and it, it definitely could have used more... You probably could have also used more monsters in here than just vampires and werewolves. Just vampires but, and werewolves, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it would have been nice. Uh, and I think that later chapters actually do a little bit of that lifting for this chapter. Because mm-hmm. like, I was, I picked ahead to the, the bestiary and like the different zombies and skeletons that are in here. Like they, again, they turn the concept of those things from the monster manual on their ear and give you something fresh. And I like that. At one point, we'll have to look at like the guide to lycanthropes or something. Because that really gives you an mm-hmm. idea of... Of just how far you can take this concept, I'll put it that way. Yeah, they have Strahd skeleton and Strahd zombie, lycanthrope, Laukiro, an Odin, which is some kind of ghost. They have Geist instead of ghost. Yeah. The, well, the, yeah, you, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that because that, that, that stuff. Yeah, the, there are some good monsters in that section. Some of those monsters are good. A couple of them, I don't know. I was always a little bit on the fence with, but a lot of them are good. Um, so the next chapter is curses. What did you think of this chapter? Ooh, the curses. Okay, let me let me flip to it and refresh my memory real quick. Oh yeah, this is the one. Um, this is the one where again they're they're trying to reconcile kind of two different takes on curse, right? Yeah. Uh, because there's the I am a wizard and I use my curse spell to curse you. Then there's also the you have done a great evil and someone loathes you for it, and therefore the universe itself creates a curse out of their hate. Yes. Uh, and that is by far the richer concept. And the book knows that. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's the concept they're interested in, for sure. They're, 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 they're kind of poo-pooing the spellcaster curses a little bit. Well, yeah, and they're explicit. Whatever they're talking about designing a curse, they're like, don't mention game mechanics. Uh, make sure the curse is founded in something. Tailor it to their victim. Like, they really want you to be creative with how curses manifest. Yeah. And... They're really great because they they categorize them in a way that's kind of intuitive to use, you know, uh, because they have different strengths. The curses do, uh, and I loved I love the strengths of the curse. I think that was maybe my single favorite part of it. Yeah, where the lowest level is embarrassing. <laughs> no, I like I like the curses. I I think it's great, and I like that it's it's a mechanic, but there is no real mechanic. It's more like a guideline. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's just. It's just sort of like no, you can you can develop a curse and sort of implement it, and it it gives you, you know, it's a procedure with guidelines. That's how I would describe yeah. it. Yeah, and but it's you, a procedure kind of in the same way that like hex crawling or dungeon crawling is a procedure where yeah. it's not really explicitly referring to mechanics so much as it's just kind of telling you like here's how you wrangle this kind of nebulous yes. thing. Yeah, this is how you take all of these elements of the setting coming together and you shape them into something that is fair. Do you know what I mean? And workable. Um, 
I, I, I like the curses here. I, I, if I recall, I think they kind of got very elaborate as the line went on. I could be wrong, mm -hmm. but I seem to remember that happening. And I feel like this was like very easy. Like you can probably just tell by reading this. This is easy to implement. This is not. Oh hard. yeah. Well, and what I, what I sincerely love about how good curses is. This is my favorite one we've read in this thing, by the way. What I love about curses as a chapter is this is not in any way limited to Ravenloft. No, you can use no. this in any game. Yeah, you can you use this exact could. same set of guidelines in any game and introduce curses in the exact same way. And as a matter of fact, my one of my all-time favorite games, Legends of the Wulin, this is almost exactly how curses work in that mm -hmm. too. Someone has a powerful passion and it screws up someone else's reality. And it's the same basic thing. And I got to tell you, it's it was highly praised whenever Legends of the Wulin was new. I don't know how much people feel about it now. But like... I am amazed they weren't aware that these, what is this, three, four pages existed? They might have been aware brilliant. of it. It's possible. Um, uh, well, actually, I guess you would know. Was... You would probably know more than anybody. Um, <laughs> I, but... I there, In all the scuttlebutt around Legends of the Wool, I never heard anybody mention Ravenloft. Okay. So. I mean, it's, you know, a lot, like I said, there's a lot of reinventing the wheel in gaming, and I don't think that's necessarily mm -hmm. a bad thing. If people reinvent the wheel, that means it's good technology. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, it's founded on the same principles. Yeah. I mean, like even calculus was invented by two people in the same yeah. generation. Yeah. You know, I think I think it's fine. Sometimes we obsess too much about what's the origin point and all that. I, you know, I'm not as what I'm interested in is does the mechanic work? And in this case, yeah, the does curse it make a good game? Yeah. yeah, the mechanic works. I like the mechanic here. Um, I I love this. These this is the kind of game design that I I, I will give my hearty stamp of approval to it is robust it is robust because you can take it out of its source material and it still does the same thing it's robust because it doesn't require a particular set of game mechanics to work it's robust because it's a set of principles and processes that consistently work whenever you're doing a role-playing game and they make this happen consistently it's really fantastic game design yeah so so you know, I I I think it's a great chapter. I I was I was surprised how how smooth it was reading through it again. It too. is. That was one of my. Uh, I was expecting a lot more. Uh, I don't know, a lot more ungainliness, and it wasn't really there. there. We'll get when we get to fortune telling, we might encounter some ungainliness, but I think uh, I think the curses are really well sorted. Uh, okay, the next chapter is gypsies, obviously. This is a you know this is one I, I think they this is probably one that the new Ravenloft has had a lot of the more trouble with because of the, this is what we call a baggage chapter mm -hmm. uh, that's got a lot of baggage and I don't think a chapter like this would get written outside of like the nineties you know um, yeah probably not like, probably explicitly not. the nineties too like not even an earlier generation you know because the nineties was a unique time when it came to race relations especially in the United States where this was written because like. The exoticism was seen as a as a universal positive with anyone who wasn't like it was like a non-light race, right? And it was there was nothing, there was no real knowledge in pop culture about the differences between ethnic groups or anything like that. Uh, but there was like this unbelievable like openness and positivity about people that were, were different than the norm. There, were, I mean, yeah. in general, nineties was a big well. I think of different cultures anyway. But... My my take on it has been, and again, I'm I'm ancient. I'm out of the loop. So like. <laughs> But like when when this came out, we didn't know about real gypsies at all. We didn't know about yeah. Roma. Like to us, it, they were all we knew is what we saw in the movies. And because in because again, this is a this is an American product, and Americans, yes. it's not like this there's is... there's not there you don't you don't encounter gypsies 
You don't encounter Roma. They might they they exist, I'm sure, but you just don't like. It's not like yeah, when I went to Europe, I actually saw Roma. Do you know what I mean? But in America, yeah, you don't. This um, is a very <laughs> I read about this particular thing in yeah. a book kind of yeah. chapter. Like this isn't founded in someone's experience. But but what I will say is I think what they were meant to embody is like gypsies at this point just embody this ability to live outside of the culture, to sort of be free, to 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 not abide by society's rules. And so even though some of the things are presented as stereotypes, I think they were, and again, you know, I know it wouldn't pass muster today, but I think at the time it was meant as more of a positive association than negative one. Do you know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. it's sort of like they were, they're this transgressive sort of colorful, humorous and, you know, carefree, uh, you know, element well, of the setting, you know, they're talked about in, I universally positive tones. Like there's yeah. no negative judgment anywhere in here about them. The, the, they're the, described the, as... the closest that you can get to negative is when it says they're charlatans, but it's said in a way where it's really kind of like they're charlatans. It they're, they're... It blends that with the general human tendency to be charlatans though. Like it doesn't say, Oh, that's been the particular thing to them. It's like, well, some people are liars. And so there's a chunk of the population. No, and but there is the a point that's... where they say that they're. Uh, I I do think that it sort of presents them as, um, I don't know, as sort of, you know, that's the element of of the Vistani that is enabling them to exist outside of society. Do you know what I mean? I think that's the 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 angle that they were taking there. Um, I have to get back to the line though, because I can't really remember how it was phrased exactly, and I don't remember exactly where the. Uh, you keep talking, and I will. Uh, uh, I will try <laughs> I to you. find. I will try to find the charlatan reference to see which characterization is more accurate. Um, Fair enough, and like that's the thing. Like I was saying, the, the way race relations worked, especially in the early '90s, it's very different than our modern concept. Uh, and it it was optimistic and naive, and and ultimately dumb. I think, and then maybe a little bit, uh, more than a little bit offensive, whatever you actually like, because a lot of this was like, these are white authors talking about something that they have absolutely no real knowledge of. Like, again, this is a, I saw a gypsy fortune teller in a hammer horror yeah, movie yeah. and but, I wanted it to be in this game because that felt But totally there's no mal. I don't think there was any malice in it. And I don't right. think it's. And- it's not racist in the sense of coming from a place of hate and prejudice. It's more like naive. And it's coming from a place of optimism and ignorance, you know? Yeah, which... And, like, that's the distinction here. Yeah, and, and again, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, like, right out. Like, I'm personally not offended by it, but I, you know, I'm an American, and I was grew up in the 90s, so I don't necessarily have the sensibilities of somebody now. But oh, yeah. it was, and... you know, but but I have a friend, my friend Rob, who we've had on the program, he, he, he took issue with the Vistani. So, like, you know, it's not a universal thing with people my age. There are people my age that have different points of view on this. Um, you know, I had, a, I had a, I had a pretty involved discussion with Rob where, you know, he, 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 he didn't even like, uh, the way gypsies were portrayed in Dracula, for example. So, you know, it, you know, again, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think the thing is though, these, these are comp- these are conversations that don't have to be as simple as they often are online, if that makes sense. And yeah, I think well, when you're t- talking about nineties stuff. The '90s is such a weird period, and it really is a weird yeah. period. <laughs> there was, I mean, like number one, there was a lot of drugs. There was a lot of there was there was a lot of rebelliousness, a lot of transgressiveness. 
and you know that was like the era of like Lollapalooza and stuff like that and so you oh, kind yeah Lollapalooza yeah you have to kind of I mean I'm not saying that you need to read this chapter and say oh this was the greatest thing but I think that when you see a chapter like this understanding that that was the context when this started you know and again this is early 90s this is like 1990 i think or 91 yeah, so it's very early. early but there was still a lot of that stuff in the air brewing do you know what i mean so uh you know it's it's just a different different time but um but yeah so i know what did you think of the Vistani? like that stuff aside what did you think of the presentation of the Vistani for the set like, uh, there's a, a couple of things about them that I find redeeming. I like that, again, that they're talked about in positive tones. I like that they have a sense of real politic about them. They actually, they can cast curses. They can see the future. They have real magic powers that are tonally appropriate for the setting. Yeah. Um, I like that they just give the middle finger to the mist and just go wherever the hell they want. Uh, that that makes them so intrepid and fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's their big thing is that they, they can travel more freely through the mists and they seem to have, they're more free than people, other people in general, right? Like that's just kind of. Yeah, it, it's because their freedom is in, there's, there's a certain like, um, I don't know, almost dangerousness to their freedom, you know, like it's not evil to be free, especially when you're talking to an American audience, like freedom is our favorite thing, but like the way in which they're free is strongly contrasted uh, against like the sort of because with a, with a gothic atmosphere like it's all like castles and peasants and in, in hovels and people huddling to churches terrified these are people that stay where they're born their whole lives and so when you contrast that with just how like vibrant and and mobile and dynamic the Vistani are like that's a really significant contrast and i think yeah. it's a really cool one you know yeah, I, th- I think in terms of giving them a place in the setting, the chapter definitely works. It's a fairly lean chapter. They do have a guide to Vistani later on. I, 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 I sort of had mixed feelings on that one because I feel like the Vistani were never like a threat like a lot of the other monsters were in the in the guidebooks. So it wasn't necessary to have all like all this information that the GM now needs to memorize in order to run Vistani. Um, yeah, so, you this, know, this is enough, you know. To, to make a D and D culture, because it's not yeah. like we're talking about a real human culture here. They're based in one. These are definitely, like you said, the, they're yeah. they're based in Roma and Roma mythology. No, no, I gotta say, a lot of this looked too. pretty Italian to me. That was sort of my you yeah. Know, I, you mentioned that, yeah. like I I didn't see it, but I don't. I only have like one Italian. I could house, be. So I could be wrong. Like I just. And I don't know anything about Roma, so I don't know if this, you know, if there's just, but there's stuff in here that like I definitely saw as like. Like they have like the Maloik, do you know what I mean? They have they have stuff like that, and yeah, what was it the Aniso that you were talking about too? Yeah, right? yeah, like like Anis Anis is like gonna you know uh you know uh you know liquors you know based on like Aniset stuff based off uh like I guess like uh um it's kind of got like a licorice type flavor, do you know what I mean? Like hmm. that was like one of the the uh oh, that sounds good actually yeah um you know there's also cookies that are flavored from that just things like that I, again I don't know my. I, that was just sort of my general kind of reaction was a lot of this seems kind of, you know, obviously the stuff with the, the wagons and the violins, well, violins too, but like the yeah, way the violins, violin, yeah, too. my grandfather played violin actually. That was, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, I, I, it, it, again, I, I don't know enough about this, uh, about Roma to, to, to say, to say one way or the other, but I, I just thought that there was kind of some Italian seeming things in here. Um, but yeah, I don't know anything else on this chapter. 
Um, I mean, here's the thing. I, I understand why someone would take offense to this. Like, I really, I get it. You know, I, th this is, there's a lot of like negative stereotypes this is based off of, and you don't necessarily want to immortalize that in your game. But at the same time, that's a lot of hubbub over something that's only a few chapters long and you can completely excise from the setting if you really don't like it, you know? Like, you don't have to have gypsies in your Ravenloft. You don't. I, well, I Honestly, I'd probably put them in. I think they uh, I think they still have them, though, to be honest. I think they still kept them. No, they do. I Because, remember, this got acquired by a huge corporation. And corporations, they never throw anything away. If it's their intellectual property, they leverage it. That's mm -hmm. how it works. Uh, it is foolish, foolish to discard something that could make uh, you money. Also, so. I... I, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, but I think that the stuff I remember because I was follow I, I I don't play Five E and I'm not that aware of a lot of the conversations, but I do follow Ravenloft discussions, and I think mm. a lot of the complaints I saw about the presentation of the Vistani were more about stuff that they introduced in Curse of Strahd that was actually kind of worse than this chapter, if I remember. Oh like really? There was, yeah, I think there was stuff in there that. Like suggest I don't I don't know I I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't remember but I just remember there being things in there that looked like more negative stereotypes than were present. In well, this okay, one. so I will say of this chapter, uh, as a White Wolf fan, infamously White Wolf had a supplement called Gypsies, and it was like every stereotype in the book. It was a really okay. big chapter. They had like ethnic ethnicity based powers that were really based on some crummy stereotypes and it 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 went about like a lead balloon um there's a vampire clan called the ravnos who are like clearly based on like the romani and they've got like the same set of stereotypes and it's okay. yeah so it's not I... like gaming has always handled it, like looking at these few pages this is so much less there's not there's not a lot that. here right so like right no but but i will say one thing i've never read the vampire guide to gypsy so i have no idea like i've heard i've heard people complain about it so it's i but bad. but i do want to i do want to defend the writer because her i know her name was what tianan woodruff was that the, the name oh, yeah, of her? Yeah. um she wrote some of the best ravenloft material she wrote the guide to the created for example that is one of the best books i've ever read for for an rpg I, I feel like I understand why people would be upset if there was content in there for whatever reason or whatever. But I feel like, I don't know, I think she was a great writer. And um, so I, I, I feel like, you know, I don't want to just, you know, attack that book without mentioning that she wrote. Well, the okay, let's, and let's be clear about the the distinction between criticizing something as it doesn't age well yeah and criticizing something that was written by someone who is actually has a terrible agenda yeah yeah no one was racist who worked on this yeah I that's think, a ridiculous but that's, claim but see, that's kind know? of important because that's kind of like I, I that's kind of getting this to where i think we should take it which is um because i've had discussions with people about ravenloft uh in uh you know present day and a lot of uh, mostly younger gamers but some older gamers too I feel like the reading of the material is very uncharitable where you mm. could look at a certain Lord and say, Oh, well that's sort of like a, you know, you know, you could make a, a, a female character that's less this way and more that way. And it would be better. Mm. But I think, I think that like, sometimes we look at these things as if they're, they're all just benchmarks of, of, do you know what I mean? Like it's, Sometimes a person well, like you is have just a set of standards that doesn't conform to those standards. It's yeah. evil. Well, yeah. it's sort of I like sometimes somebody's just trying to make something interesting 
and they're not trying to bring any harm into the world. They're not bringing any harm into the world, but you're carrying a lens that imposes that message onto what they're mm-hmm. writing. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, and again, I haven't read the guide to gypsies, so I can't comment on that one, but just based on the guide to the created and stuff like this, uh, and just based on Tune stuff I've next seen time when we do, when we review white wolves, gypsies. No, I, I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is I'm a little uncomfortable with the heat that that's sort of, that that author has taken because she was a good writer and I don't, I doubt that there was any malicious intent there. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely not. But here's the thing that, that gets you under my skin about gypsies Mm -hmm. uh, from the, from the white wolf perspective. It's that they had a real content mill way of doing things. And that made them in every book cram in way more stuff into it that it needed to have to express Mm -hmm. the concept. And it was more about bilking whatever idea they had yeah. for the fattest book they could get. That is what made that book actually bad. And most of White Wolf books actually bad. There's only a few that are great. Um, but the material they had to work with was not exactly abundant well, at the time it was being written. And so yeah. you actually inevitably, because of the facts of how they did business and what they had to work with, you had to make gypsies like it turned out. There was no okay. other way to write that book at that time. Okay, okay. I could. So, I mean, I guess one comparison I could make is one of the reasons why I sort of fell out of love with with at least the three E Ravenloft and why five E Ravenloft doesn't quite look like uh, it's going to be my cup of tea. Is just the way that White Wolf sort of not White Wolf Wizard Wizard of the Coast when they when they make books they kind of have to fit in. Like there was a way that TSR made books which I liked. And then there's a way that Wizards of the Coast makes book that I'm less in love with, which is mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of structured around the mechanics of the game more. So every book will have, a, you know, it's, I don't think they do it now for 5e, but like, well, you know, it would have third, prestige no, classes edition. and they would have feats and they would have all this mm-hmm. stuff that has to be in there. No, that's and, exactly what they do now. That's, yeah, that is okay. the white wolf. That is the, you got me doing it now. Wizards of the Coast business model is yeah. here is the, the three core books for the game and every supplement book has to have everything that's in those books in it. Even yeah, if that doesn't make any sense. And and like and this I, and even this book has some of that, right? Where it's yeah. like, here's how people would react to an elf in this setting. Yes. But yes. elves were considered rarer in old D D than they are now. They're like not even unusual to see elves now. Like it's pretty much common. They're just but, another but, kind of person. But in their defense, the things they didn't do in this book was they didn't make new classes. They didn't make new races. They didn't make, you know, they, the, these and those are all very player oriented things, anyways. But in it, you know, you know, the way that Watsy tends to do things is you tend to get those things, right? You tend to get mm-hmm. the the new classes, the new feats, the new blah blah blah. Well, that's, um, that's the thing; they're expanding their audience because yeah. if only GMs bought this book, that means you know, one fifth of the people that play D anD D are buying it. But if a player could buy this book and get new options, well, suddenly. A lot more people could buy it. I I think that's true, but I've always felt that short side. I've never liked that model, and the reason why oh, it's is garbage. Well, the reason why I think it's bad is the GM. And we're going way off topic, but the GM. <laughs> it's really important that the GM be excited about running a game, and that the GM have kind of their space that they're spoken to. Do you know what I mean? Where, mm-hmm. whereas the Watsi approach always kind of was focused on giving stuff to the players and the players really became it's as a GM. Here was my, my feeling going from edition to edition is I felt like I was GMing because I loved GMing when I was doing two E and when I was doing three E it felt like work. 
Do you mean that was oh, yeah. kind of you know what I mean? Um, and the, and my bosses were the players. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And so that's just, I it's just a different vibe. Um, again, I think it I think it probably does sell more books. I just don't think it's a great way to. I think when you're making a setting, the person you need to excite is the GM. The person who you want to make that information for is the GM. The players don't even necessarily. It's almost worse if they have access to it. You don't want them having access. Well, to that there, there's a infamously i i like recruiting players who have never played an rpg before for my rpgs mm. like i just i find my friends and if i feel like they're going to be fun to hang out with in an rpg i'm like hey look make an elf and we'll just we'll just play my best gaming experiences are from players who barely know the rules and basically mm. don't care about them because they're not thinking about the rules they're thinking about being present in the situation in the game they're thinking yeah. about role-playing their character they're thinking about this. They're acting like a player, an ideal player for an RPG. And when you change that to someone who buys books, memorizes rules, demands certain things get included so they can have the exact kind of fantasy they want, that person should be a GM. That's not a yeah. player you're talking about anymore. They're further. I know people who play and only play that own more books for role playing games than I do. And I write role playing games for a living. Like. Well, not for a living, but I do it and I make money off of it. So like, well, actually that's a common thing. Like a lot of, a lot of uh, when, before I started designing games, I played way more games because I didn't, you know, I wasn't working on a line. So I wasn't mm -hmm. like as focused on this one game that I'm making. Do you know what I mean? But like when you're making a game, you have to play that game and you don't have as much time to pursue other types of games. Um, but why don't we move on to telling the future? Because that's the the last. Oh, yeah, that's the uh, last chapter. Okay, and ooh, this this was a fascinating chapter for me because like, how do you do it? How do you tell the future in a role playing game when the players actually have the freedom to change things? Yeah. And I think this actually starts off with that discussion. It does. Uh, under the, yeah, predicting the future in an RPG where they're like, well, you can't and you shouldn't because that would suck, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they give they uh, give you a few approaches. Um, they give you some tricks, which yeah. I really like. Like the if then, if this happens, then this will happen. Yeah. That's great, uh, because the players now are forearmed with a with a knowledge of well, if we go to fight Strahd during you know X on Vulpercusnacht or whatever, then we have to deal with the werewolf. Like the yeah. the, the gypsy woman said so. Yeah, well, no. the other the other sleight of hand they do, and this is kind of pulled from the. Um, the the raven the original ravenloft module they they basically take that that mechanic of using the cards um, oh and they generalize it yeah that was but, fucking but cool. the, there's another sleight of hand going on there which is it really isn't about telling the future so much as the present mm -hmm. do you know what I mean like they're, you're, they're just giving you information about things that exist that the enemy you know like what like where is the layer of the bad guy do you know what I mean things like that like that's not right, that's and, not a future thing that's like where, that's that, just the present. Yeah. But here's the thing. It will happen in the player's future. And that's where yeah. it's clever because it's like you just – you give them information from the setting, but you phrase it in a way where you're predicting the future. So yeah. if you travel east upon the moonlight in the moors, you will find the – the then will come to the lair of the beast. Yeah. Like, okay, that's a prediction. Yeah. If you do that, then this will happen. But you could also just say that's how reading a map works. If yes. we read the map and go where it tells us to go, then we'll get to where we're supposed to go if it's an accurate map. What what I like about this mechanic is they basically say, get a deck of cards, and this is for the card reading. There are other types of things that they offer. Yeah, they I like the get, card reading, yeah. though. That's a cool yeah. little thing. Yeah, they say, get the cards, and then, like, pick, like, 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 write out a bunch of different things that, like, the suits can mean, and then... 
different things that different card values can mean, right? And then, you know, and then sort of explain, like, have like a key for yourself, and 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 you can and and these become things that get determined by the cards, basically, which is, you know, which is I I think you know again it's a gray area because on the one hand you're kind of you're kind of leaving a prep decision to the cards, right? But it's it's the only way that you can really do okay, this sort so, of thing. And here's the thing about that. I'm, as a GM, comfortable with not knowing what the name of the tavern is mm-hmm. or not knowing what the noble wants when they go in to get a job from them and just rolling it off a chart. I'm fine with yeah. it. Because whether I thought about it in detail, whether or not I roll it out of the chart, functionally, it's going to do the same thing in the game. You know, does it matter if there's an orc or an osher jelly or a vampire behind that door? No, it matters there's a monster behind it. So I roll and whatever comes up, that's what's on the door when they open it up. That's fine. You don't have to prep to the point. No, no, no. I think I think where the here's here's where the issue comes in. And it's whether it's an issue really depends on the group. But where the issue can come in is the players will eventually realize that what's going on is these things are being determined by the cards, that the cards are not I, revealing I don't know if they it. Will. Because Maybe I've not. never had I, a player call me on rolling from a D100 chart. Because it, I, the roll no, is on the other side of the screen. But but here you're actually showing them the cards and saying what's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yes. And like, I mean, I certainly on some level they'll understand that that might be happening, but you don't have to do that. The other thing this tells you to do is just say, like, get information that they could just be given yeah, from yeah. just a person. Make that associated with the cards. So they turn over the card and they happen to get that piece of info. From a player perspective, that's functionally indistinct from the card creating it. They no, wouldn't be able to know. How would they determine it? That's true. But at the same time, if you do it that way, it's it might become clear to the party over time. I'd mix them up, dude. Yeah, that might be like, a way to do it. That might be a way to I, do I would, it. I would put some true things that I've already established in there, and some things would just be association. I'd be like, okay. I don't know what happens here. Yeah. So the players are going to be my D100 chart. Yeah. They're going to pull and, up cards. I'm going to free associate. Then I'm going to make a note about it, and it's going to be a fact. And yeah, they no, will not be able to tell which one's which. And I quite like this mechanic, but I just wanted to point that out because I feel like um, this is going to... What would be the way to say it? This is definitely going to rub some style... It's the wrong way, maybe. Do you know what I mean? Like certain oh, really? play styles might have an issue. Uh, like if if you, if, I I feel like if people don't like things popping into existence randomly, the method where the cards determine where the layer is could mm-hmm. be an issue for them. Um, I don't have an issue with it because I feel like there's really no other way to do fortune telling. Like if you know the you can't predict like. Like what? What? What else would the part players expect the GM to do except for like some kind of weird sleight of hand with cards or something, right? Like there's just, you know, the the, the GM isn't going to be able to actually demonstrate fortune telling ability, so you have well, to simulate that's, that's it. The thing. It, and there's the way that you would go about this usually is you would simply describe someone turning over cards, you yeah. know, in their their wagon or whatever, or looking into a crystal ball. The genius of giving them the deck. And having them flip over the cards and become like immersed in the actual physicality of that act. And then those things, like those things meaning something in terms of what will happen in the game's future, no matter which approach you use to legitimize that, whether you're just yeah. giving out information that was already there, whether or not you're freestyling it right there on the spot, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, if you're just making if then statements and they're not even connected to the cards in any way, 
the fact that they are immersed in that moment, like that's that is such a powerful spice for a suspension of disbelief. Yeah. You know, because it does actually matter within the context of the game, and they actually really did flip over those cards. That's real to them in a way that's very different than you just describing the scene. Yeah. And I really love that. Yeah. No. I. I um. I, I think I think it's a, a nifty system. And also, one thing I will say, I, I sometimes I praise the black box and I kind of denigrate later stuff. But the red <laughs> box, I think it was the red box or the, uh, was it Forbidden Lore? One of the box sets had a bunch of stuff on Taroka, the car, the, the Vistani cards, and, oh, yeah, yeah. and, um, uh, and and like uh, a di- and like a dice rolling thing to simulate, I think rolling the bones or runes. I can't I can't remember what it was, but it was a lot of fun. It added a lot to the game. Um, it does I, too. Like uh, having little props like that really matters, especially in a in an atmospheric well, kind of moody place like this. And the Taroka deck, the, see the art of the uh, the, uh, the Stephen Fabian art the mm-hmm. on the page. He did uh, every yeah. he did the whole deck. So you had a whole turtle. Yeah, that must have been. It was great. I wish I still had mine. I wish I still had mine. Um, Yeah, Stephen Fabian makes this book come alive. He really does. And they basically just had a deck that was like a setting appropriate tarot deck. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's all Um, I would want out of it. You know, I don't need much. Um, But yeah, I I thought that uh, I thought that this chapter was was interesting. Again, it was just there were there were times where. um yeah i don't know like i i think uh i think i noticed a few errors actually in the um in the example if i remember no joke Uh, where's that i think it doesn't line up well maybe it wasn't meant to but like some of the examples i don't think lined up with the key that they created (laughs) Uh, i think so i could be wrong i could be wrong i didn't Um, read in that level of detail because i was thinking about it more like a, a a big picture thing but yeah it might not Ooh. I I can totally see how that would happen though. So I mean, the point the point is still, you know, uh, is made either way. Oh yeah, right here it says uh, the spade is a symbol of the water, but right here it says spade is a symbol of the air. Yeah, that yeah, was that actually... was the one that. <laughs> oh well, look at that. <laughs> Oops. So that that probably could have used a, a better proofread. Yeah. Who proofread this book? Who is the editor? I'm going to make fun of them real quick. I'm going well, to dox let's, them. Let's not, because we don't know. You know, Number one, that mistake, and there was one typo that I noticed. But otherwise, you know, I haven't really picked up on anything else. Doesn't mean there aren't you other know, mistakes. I don't um, see a, I don't see an editor credited. Oh, it's probably so. because they just had an in-house editor. They didn't, you know, they didn't credit them. Because um, I don't do that. Oh, no, they do credit the artists. Um yeah, they credit everybody else. There's no credited editor. Well, there you go. Next time, Maybe, credit your editor. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe that was his revenge. <laughs> They're not going to give me a credit. I'll I'll mess up their little spade example. <laughs> oh, you think you're so smart about the the cards, huh? Maybe he hated that system and he's just making fun of it. <laughs> I, I, it'd be very interesting to know what what if there were any kind of like politics that made their ways into the books from that time <laughs> like petty office squabbles yeah. that, that's such a delightful yeah. idea <laughs> um we'll have to see if we can get james louder on the program and see if he can give us the skinny um that's that, that's no way a long shot that'll definitely happen tune in next week folks. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote night of the black rose james louder um so uh yeah and, and a lot of other things but that's my my favorite book from him was night of the black rose um, oh, man. 
So this so. Uh, this has been a pretty broad discussion, actually. I, I didn't think we were as deep into like gamer game history and and like the current state of gaming and stuff like that. But like we really did, uh, and I feel like we covered some good ground this time. Uh, overall, I'm actually really intrigued to start digging into the, the 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 further into this book because like I've really dug the principles they've laid down in these opening chapters. Like they've really done a great job in my estimation well, of like just distinguishing this from mainline D&D in a way that's really characterful and usable. Like, that that's really neat. Well, our, our next two chapters are probably the most boring. I will warn you of that. Um, they're, they're necessary, but boring. Like, the spells in Ravenloft chapter is largely a list of how spells are altered. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, that's not it's not the most exciting read. Um, <laughs> but we have Lands of the Core to look forward to. Page 60 is where things will really kick up quite a bit um, oh yeah so where are we reading to this next time because we have spells in ravenloft and it's magic items is the one after that and then it's lands of the core i think we but should... lands of the core is pretty hefty i think we should do spells and magic items because lands of the core is gonna that's that's a deep dive that's a deep dive you gotta you gotta no. be able to really sit down and read those do you know what i mean i feel like it, it needs my full attention do you want to do lands after this next one do you want to do lands and islands of terror or no just... mm. Because it's only two pages in Islands of Terror. Like, it's really light. It is lighter. We'll see. We'll see. When you get through the lands of the core, we'll see how you feel about Islands of Terror. Okay, um, okay. I, I wanna, I'm, I, I've been pretty ravenous with this. Uh, I stuck to once every two days for reading chapters. And then when I got to, um, after the Gypsies chapter, uh, I immediately read the next chapter. I felt like they kind of were companion chapters. Yeah, they were. And they were. I actually had to force myself not to keep reading it at the Spells and Ravenloft thing. Cause I'm, I'm genuinely like, I love the the nuts and bolts of mechanics a lot. Uh, maybe too much for my own good, but I, this is going to be a chapter that's a lot more rewarding to me probably than to you. Uh, well, so I, it's, I'm it's excited. just, it's a chapter that I remember having to refer to all the time during play, but I remember it not be, it's not the exciting read that the, you know, reshaping of characters is or the, the yeah, it, you know, kind of like reading a cookbook, you know, yeah. it's more about consulting it when necessary and less about reading it as prose. Yeah. So it's a different kind of read. I think, I do think the magic item chapter is probably going to be more interesting than the well, magic items are nifty, especially in old yeah. D&D because they all sort of have their own story. Yeah. Um, anyway, so th those are my parting thoughts. What are your parting thoughts on these chapters? Uh, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of chapters we covered. Um, we did, but how did this strike you the first time you read it? Like, what was so intriguing about these opening chapters to you? I don't know what it was, to be honest. I just know that um, I think, again, it was the overall style of the book. It was, um, I I think, things like just realizing that, that this was a setting where curses operated that way. Things like that was were, were were really drawing me into it, and also the possibilities hinted at, like when you when you read about, um, like they give an example of a character who's cursed. I forget what it was by by stormy skies or something. To mm -hmm. you know, immediately I'm like my brain is thinking, oh, it'd be really great to like curse a character so that they can't go out into the sun, and then <laughs> you know maybe eventually they become a vampire over time. You know what I mean? Like you know things like that. Uh, I feel like it's the these opening chapters are chapters you read and you get a lot of ideas of what you would like to do with this game. And so, you know, it's it's I don't know, it's a very sort of usable 
introduction. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 well written. It it's flavorful, but it's uh it's stuff where you read it and you're like, oh, I know exactly how I can use that in a game now. You know, it's just kind of a, um, and and I think too, what it was for me was uh, Ravenloft was always kind of a mystery for me when it first came out because like I remember you know and again I I think I got into it probably about a year after the box set came out is my guess six months or a year I, I whenever night of the black rose came out that's when i got into ravenloft and i don't remember the precise chronology but i read that book and i i was kind of before that i remember being a little bit dismissive of ravenloft and being like uh eh, i don't know if I, how i feel about this attempt at horror in 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 D. um hmm. but reading night of the black rose is what convinced me that it could it was just like Wow, the you know Soth is having such difficulty contending with Strahd, and the 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 land has got these principles. I don't understand. That's making this more scary to me. And so, the process of reading this box set was the process of being taught what those principles were that I was that were only hinted at in Night of the Black Rose. So that's that's I I think I think what did it for me was the double whammy of reading Night of the Black Rose becoming very intrigued about what the demi plane of dread was and then getting to learn about what the demi plane of dread was in the uh, you know in the block black box set and the black box set was so readable because you know i i i i i had a bunch of settings and a bunch of box sets but i hadn't really encountered one that just demanded to be read the way this one did do you know what i mean like a lot of them were sort of a chore to read and this was one where i yeah. really enjoyed reading it and i don't know how I don't know why I just did. Um, well, I, that, that's another thing that I think is remarkable about it. And I, I want to draw attention to that too, because like a lot of old sets are, you bounce off of them as a yeah. reader because like, they're not readable. They're, they're there to be consulted. You're supposed to already kind of know what you're doing. Yeah. And so it's more about like prepare. It's used as a, a tool to help you prepare content for a games. This is, it's different. The, the character of the text is different. It's more about here are some concepts and philosophies and general techniques you can use with what you already know how to do. And it, it's teaching you this different kind of skill set. And it's, it's bringing you subtly and skillfully into this, this dark Gothic world. And it's, it's doing it like every page has this beautiful black design to it. Like it, it's a, yeah. it's a brilliant use of like, like the the color and the the darkness and the tone of all the the art and it it flows so beautifully it's constructed so beautifully with the text and the texture of it all like you can't help but get into a mood where you get excited to run something gothic with these these same principles that you're learning about it's all it's fresh and it it's inviting to a new reader i could see especially this would play to someone who was younger and never encountered them before hmm. so yeah that's and i as if anyone's listening to this, they never actually encountered Ravenloft before. I got to tell you this, the realm of terror is pretty remarkable in that regard. Uh, even later Ravenloft stuff, which I've tried to read, I had that same kind of bounce off effect, but like this it's, one I'm enjoying it. I, like I, it's, it's fun. I think the later Ravenloft stuff, at least for me, was just too ornate and flowery. It had too much content and it had too many words, if that makes sense. And well, it's, it, it went back to being more like a thing where, I don't know, like 
there's this weird divide in a lot of modules where like there's pros and then there's the stuff you'll use in your game. Yeah. And this one has this kind of middle ground where it's like, here's techniques that you can use with these small additional rules we're putting in to really make this work with the game you already know. Yeah. And there's not, there's not like this, there's not a hard divide between something being prosaic and something being mechanical. And the authors know that too. They have kind of a sense of humor that kind of permeates the whole thing and makes it go down a lot easier. Yeah, this, so. I, I I feel like I feel like this is very digestible. It's definitely yeah, there a, you go. yeah, it's, it's digestible. It's very digestible, um, and a lot of setting books aren't. A lot of setting books are you're kind of stuck reading, like the equivalent of a history book for a fictional setting, um, and mm. I like history, but like I don't necessarily want to read ten pages of of a uh, of each individual area in the map do you know what i mean like that's where mm -hmm. i think um this style just kind of works better for me um yeah it's evocative without being like heavy you know yeah a, a lot of the, a lot of books like that a lot of setting books are heavy like you said you're digesting geographic description and and like political realities and like trade routes and stuff that like how am I going to make this something that happens in my game? This tells you what's important about it. And it says, here's how you make those important things pop and make sense mm -hmm. and matter to your players. I love that. Yeah. I, th I, th I think it, I think it, it really is like a, it, it, there's a very, there's a simplicity to this book that, uh, um, just for me made it really easy to use. I, I, I you know, and I think usability to me is important. Um, but it doesn't lack for like style or flavor. So it's, 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 it's a nice, it's, it's, it strikes a nice balance. Um, it's some, you know, it's, it's, it's like they managed to be concise, but they still get, you know, uh, Oh yeah. They, they still, still create, realize what yeah, they're doing. Yeah. They create atmosphere still. So, you know, I, I just like the way that it was done. Um, but yeah, so we should probably end it here and, uh, we'll be on next time and we'll continue into the spell chapters and then ultimately into the land, of Ravenloft itself, which I think is where this will get to be very interesting. So until then, we will talk to you later.
Thank mm-hmm. you.